Cineboys to Cinemen, episode 24. 24. 24. Uh, is this our second episode conducted over Zencaster? It is indeed, yeah. Yeah, we did the exploitation one over Zencaster, uh, yeah. even though we were in the same house. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and now we... So, yeah, we're doing a remote episode this week for uh, reasons uh, and circumstances beyond our control. The sea bomb uh, Yes. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Ben doesn't want to kill all of his family. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a, which... Yeah, admirable. <laughs> a betrayal of cinema, but admirable all the same. I did. I, I very nearly uh, came round, and then I kind kiss, of uh, and kiss me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just uh, just ha- had a bath in your bath water or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or all of my unwashed clothes. <laughs> oh yeah. man. No, 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 nothing serious yet, but we're just being pre- taking precaution, which I think is uh, fair enough. Absolutely, yeah. yes. So this week, uh, a double recording session split into mm. two episodes. Uh, yes, we've done this before. We we sort of made the we tried to make out that we'd recorded them each week, which yeah, I just think it's yeah. best to get that I like, lie out of the way immediately. Yeah. Uh, this is a double recording session, the first of two. The first one is, of course, Oppenheimer. Nolan's yes. Oppenheimer. Yes, so, exactly. um, yeah, lots to talk about, lots of ground to cover, the film, mm. obviously, which comes, yeah. as, as you should be familiar with by now, as our loyal listeners, uh, the review comes <laughs> at the uh, end, or towards the end of the podcast. Um, before that, of course, we have the usual conversational guff. This week, it will be about Nolan himself, of course, his career, yeah. uh, the position he occupies in Hollywood. I think we've alluded to him a few times. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Throughout the sort of uh, the series, in diff- many different episodes, because he's such a pivotal figure, certainly in contemporary mainstream blockbuster American cinema, mm, uh, yeah. And the space that he occupies is really quite fascinating for lots of reasons. We'll get into that later on. Mm. And since uh, the film centres on <clears throat> the birth of the atom bomb, uh, one of the most sort of haunting and pivotal moments in human history, we felt it best to also rattle through some atomic. Uh, era movies uh, yeah. as these films I guess are like you know they, they they share a lot of the thematic similarities obviously Nolan is resurrecting the anxiety of atomic power um, mm. but the films that uh, there's a couple of films I wanted to bring to the uh, to the fore as it were oh, okay. uh, are films that were made very shortly after um, and I think a lot of people will know these examples for sure but I think it'd be interesting to talk about that talk yeah. about these films in that in the same context mm, yeah yeah perfect oh mate i'm looking forward to it yes i'm really looking forward to this one actually mm. um so uh why don't we just let's just do it oh my all right then yeah <laughs> questing the cinematic void. Uh, okay then uh okay. atomic age cinema uh, a mm. period that preceded the uh, or the closing stages of the Second World War, but really mm. took into its own in, in the 1950s. Mm. Um, a sort of genre of film that was very much driven by anxiety, an anxiety yeah. of a otherworldly, godlike power, and the yeah. impact this has on you know on, on the human race. I guess I wanted to bring up a few films from this era because, as sort of alluded to in the intro, the anxiety in these films is just threaded into every moment. And 
whilst, of course, Nolan resurrects that anxiety, I think, quite well. We'll get into that a little bit later yeah. on. I think yeah, it's really yeah. important to sort of discuss some of these examples from that time and what was okay. driving these filmmakers to make these cautionary tales about atomic power in an era yeah. where, you know, there was so much fear and anxiety, not just about the atomic power, sort of broadly speaking, but its application, its use, and yeah. how the powers that be can manipulate, you know, public the public consensus into the use of such weapons i.e you know japan um, not that the japanese public uh, sorry not that the american public had a lot of say in the matter um <laughs> no. of the use of atomic weapons in japan but um you know i think the anxiety is also about that as well and the sort of the hubris of man um the terrors of unchecked scientific advancement yeah, uh, yeah, the lack of morality around that scientific advancement and the refusal to listen to those that, you know, prophesize mm. death and destruction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all things that Oppenheimer deals with, actually, like really quite interestingly and quite well, I thought. But um, yeah, uh, what what uh, have you got a couple of examples then uh, of, of these kinds of kinds of movies? Yeah, well, I, want, I thought it'd be quite interesting to focus on um, two films, um, obviously, one of them, everyone will know, it's the most famous example of the sort of Atomic Age film. Uh, yes. And another one, perhaps lesser known, but also very popular on this side of the pond. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, this side of the world, maybe. So the yeah. two films in question are uh, Godzilla, of course. Yes. Ishiharu. Yeah, yeah, the Roland Emmerich one, I assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ishiharu Honda's uh, seminal monster movie. Yeah. Um, and them, directed by Gordon Douglas. Um, oh, right, okay. And these are two films that are monster movies, Atomic Age monster movies. I think it's really important that we discuss films from both the the, the nation that developed the, the bomb and yeah. the nation that received the bomb. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That's, I don't yeah, know if that's yeah. insensitive to frame it that way, but I just, for the lack of a better term, but... Um, no, I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th I think I think it is. I think it's really important to consider both of those angles and how both cultures dealt with the the fear, terror, and horror of, yeah. of atomic power, um, but also the guilt of mm. atomic power or of utilizing okay. atomic power. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that the monster film seems to be the way in which uh, both cultures. Uh, express that anxiety and obviously it's not just purely for monster movies but the main thrust of this sort of um atomic era anxiety was through the lens of the monster movie the unknown okay. or creatures that yeah. that were uh sort of part of folklore and certainly in japanese um in the, in the japanese case kaiju yeah. giant monsters japanese folklore Whereas yeah, yeah. Uh, in America, it's giant ants, <laughs> radiated <Yeah>. giant <laughs> ants. But both of these creatures are a are a um, are a result of atomic yeah. power. Do you think there's something to be said that obviously, in the, the sort of Japanese equivalent, it's one singular or, or, or kind of a, a, a select few sort of monsters, uh, vast, almost unimaginable in scale and you know like expertly designed but just kind of looming terror whereas in america it's kind of you know to take the idea of ants 
it's more it's more about like <laughs> it's it's more about the amount that that is the kind of scary thing i suppose i don't know if there's something in that and if there's some kind of uh subtext to, to that sort of idea i think so i think you might be right i mean i think you know there's a lot of american uh sort of atomic age monster movies that are quite outlandish and do have like prehistoric creatures or giant monsters um oh, but right I think, okay but I, think, yeah. but I think in this case it's i like to to think maybe the ant is this, this sort of domesticated presence. There's a domestic presence to the ant, an everyday presence. Yeah. There's no yeah, danger. Yeah. Uh, it's um, it's a familiar sight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think it really speaks into that underlying sort of domestic anxiety about atomic power that these mm. cre- you know that, that these irradiated ants become like the, you know, like the size of cars and, yeah, and, and yeah. you start il- infiltrating um, hu- you know human civilization. Um, mm. You know, I I really think it speaks to that sort of yeah that hidden anxiety that that hidden worry really well. Yeah, yeah. Whereas as nice. you as you point out, Godzilla is like obviously a you know you're not going to miss him here. <laughs> you know, no, he, yeah, he yeah. Is, um, but he is equally important in in the case of discussion. The sense that he is um, destruction. I mean, the destruction that he leaves in his wake is essential to the sort of atomic age message or the opposition to the use of atomic power. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of the um, <clears throat> imagery used in the film, for example, when Godzilla attacks um, the city, um, it is sort of scarily reminiscent of the sort of photography taken um, during. Uh, oh, right, during the the the, uh, the bombings yeah. themselves. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I have seen it, but it's been a while, and I. I'm ashamed to say when I did watch it, I had absolutely no idea as to the the, the subtext of anything. It was like just not made available to me that information. I think I was probably a little bit too young, but I'd love to see it again in that through that lens. Mm. It, it makes for such a much more interesting watch for sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I had the same relationship as you with the film. Which I watched it when I was quite young. I was really into monster movies when I was a kid. I love like, the Ray mm. Harryhausen monster films, but I also loved any kind of monster movie as a kid. And Godzilla was something I watched a few times growing up. But I hadn't yeah. watched it recently through the lens of that sort of, um, you know, it's almost like the country is culturally, culturally reliving the terror in a way that oh, it's right. almost like, we can't forget this because of the, mm. the, the sheer or the worldly nature of the destruction that, that, that was caused, not just yeah, in, in yeah. the blast itself, but in the, in the years of radiation poisoning and the, and the landscape altering and generation altering horror that, that, yeah. that the bomb left behind. Um, mm. And I just think that, that, that watching it through that lens, it actually makes the films oddly quite terrifying and really quite emotional. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, because you can sort of really feel the heaviness of Honda's thematic intent there, you know, and I think it's yeah, really yeah, really important to watch that film with that lens. So, you know, but whereas them, I think, is more about guilt. I think the guilt of atomic power tends to drive quite a lot of the American representation. Of course, it's got the the, the sort of the uh, the staunch anti-atomic rhetoric in the film, you know, in, in all of the films, yeah, yeah. because ended ultimately the end product of using this sort of this godlike power that you don't understand um, is also to mankind's detriment. Um, mm. But I think there's a real guilt there, and I think when one considers yeah. the historical contents of the use of the bombs on, on, on Japan, it's obviously a very hotly debated subject uh, mm. as to the legitimacy of use. Was it something that was used to 
bring the war to an end and prevent more American, indeed Japanese, loss of life? Or was it a yeah. statement of intent by the United States who, upon defeating the fascism in Germany, had shifted its gaze to communism in Russia and wanted to lay down the gauntlet and say, look, we are the definitive superpower on the, on the earth and this is what happens uh, with those yeah. that play with us. And I think if you okay. consider that, that argument, from the context of the sort of the, the way that Japan was bombed even before the the, the sort of um, the use of atomic bombs, it was all firebombing and the destruction of the, the, the cities, Tokyo included, by firebombing was horrendous. I mean, it was, it was horrendous mm. bombing campaigns conducted by the Allies throughout the entire war were on Japan. Oh, right. There's yeah. even like a senior uh, member of the United States Air Force who said, you know, if the shoe was in the foot, we'd be tried for war crimes. You know, there's absolutely no doubt. He felt very strongly that the the bombing campaign of Japan had almost pretty much yeah. rendered the country to its needs. Um, yeah. you know, the use of the atom bomb was, as, as mentioned earlier, a sort of uh, an early statement of intent in the ideological war to come, which is, of course, capitalism against communism. Um, yeah. And, of course, that would then proceed to cast a shadow over, well, the 40, 50 years. And it's yeah, yeah. partially resurrected now, as we're all sort of all too terrifyingly aware of. Yeah, it's never gone away, has it? I think it was briefly f sort of flattened by the the war on terror, uh, and there's been a kind of weird resurgence. Obviously, we've sort of like um, North Korea and their their kind of arsenal of weapons, and it's it's all it's all a big kind of a like dick waving competition, um, but a terrifying one um, that. I guess the, the world has almost weirdly got used to, you know, starting obviously in the fifties with the cold war and, uh, and uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, constant state of unease. Uh, and it's almost like, yeah, you're right. It has never really gone away. Like these, these, you know, there's not been a kind of universal mandate to, to destroy nuclear weapons. It, they're, they're still there. They're kind of hiding out in, I think there's some stored in Scotland, I think. But um, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm not saying where, I'm not saying where in Scotland. <laughs> um, no, it's, I think you're right. And I think it, that sort of, anxiety is rising again but you know a lot mm. of the discussions around nuclear weapons is you know all seemingly about the the sort of the um them as a deterrent that it prevents other powers using them knowing that, that, that some would come their way um, yeah yeah and that's something that you know oppenheimer himself in 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 oppenheimer <laughs> is, is, <Yeah>. is very <laughs> suspicious of because he mm. experiences firsthand how easily uh persuaded governments and indeed the resulting populations under the control of those governments are in the right circumstances to use them uh, oh right yeah. you know uh, and we'll talk more about that in the context of the film but i think mm. you know i think what what godzilla does so well uh, particularly the original i mean as they go on the atomic vein is thread is still there for sure um yeah but you know obviously the anxiety is more, more deeply rooted in the original um yeah yeah but you know it's this almost but what what does tend to happen with this one and, and more subsequently the following godzilla films is this call for sort of global unity national you know mm. for not national sorry sorry so this call for global unity um yeah and that you know that and not to be so swayed by nationalist uh, rhetoric uh, and look to the bigger yeah. picture um and i think that's something that is <laughs> and it's weird to say, to see it sort of threaded through <laughs> like a, a giant 
you know, essentially dinosaur movie because as the Godzilla films, <laughs> mythology becomes more ridiculous, becomes more about entertainment. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think the, the key messages of those films are still there, but they are never bettered in, in the original, which is absolutely mm. terrifying. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, them isn't them isn't really terrifying. Them is sort of a bit goofier. Um, yeah, yeah, it seems that way. But it, it's great still. It's still a great example of the sort of anxiety from the other side and it focuses more on the science the scientific application there are very sort of overt nods in the script you know voice no, okay, sort of yeah. characters about the use of this power and how much responsibility we have to make sure that this isn't used um oh right okay yeah almost a precursor to jurassic park because that had a lot of the same kind of themes about like you know how you use science and and what you use it for and if, if it's got i mean in the case of jurassic park it's more of like a commercial application but it's the same thing. I, I often thought that that was the that was an original idea, but you know, doesn't doesn't seem like it's the case. It's been a sort of something that gets threaded through since I suppose them and even like similar film Empire of the Ants as well. Have you ever seen? No, that? I've never seen that. Hey. It's quite it's quite good. I think it might have been a rip off of them because uh, it involves giant ants, uh, radioactive ants as well. So oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, interesting. But you know, yeah. I think this this sort of concern for science as you know is something that has gone through culture since science really started to take hold and dictate a lot of the you know decision making and the formation of aspects of human society. And there have always been individuals. If you think about Frankenstein, for example, you know, you know, there, this has always been a theme. I just think it really yeah. kicks off in a sort of more universal. Um, oh, well, I'm actually saying universal. Universal monsters are the same, you know. I think a yeah, lot to be yeah. said for, for fear of unchecked academic and scientific expansion, and who's going yeah, to benefit yeah. from this? Be it the archaeological stuff that that they explore in the mummy, or in yeah. or the unchecked scientific advancement in terms of human resurrection in Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein, yeah. which are both excellent, excellent so- films. Oh man, yeah, the death of it's the, the death of isn't it kind of the death of religion and the birth of science? I always thought that was the sort of angle they took behind Frankenstein in that it's like it is the you know we can play God now, I mm. suppose, and you know in terms of it having a, a sort of a historical context, whereas obviously like Godzilla is more about the atomic age. In the case of Frankenstein, it's about the death of. The, the death of theology, really. Mm. Um, that's what I always took away from yeah, it. But yeah, it's theology taking a back seat, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the, the unreal and the outlandish are no longer reserved for belief with, you mm. know, with the right with the right sort of tools and the right minds, these things can be achieved. Of course, exaggerated yeah. to, huge, to massive effect, both, yeah, both, yeah, in, yeah. Um, <laughs> both in the Atomic Age films and, of course, the sort of universal monster films of the 1930s. But I think you really get yeah. the sense that these films are, are really, not, not anti-science by any stretch of the imagination, but I think are more sort of, they're, they're pushing this agenda or this idea of, you know, science to the benefit of humankind and not for the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, I also it's it's about the the fear of what you don't understand as well. I suppose so. Obviously, uh, it's the the sort of science behind radiation and uh, it's the splitting of the atom is now very, very, very well understood. But you know, in the nineteen fifties, it's it was gibberish, jargon, and reserved for only the experts. So as a result, I suppose you get these big, bold science fiction monster epics out of it because it's it, it isn't concerned with the with the new you know the 
the actual science itself, like the, the down to the formula, it's more about the broad overview. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I um, as a brief weird aside, just kind of combining art and the atom bomb. I might have told you this before, but fascinating. You can date paintings, right? By and you can look for forgeries because old paintings pre pre the atomic age, there's a chemical they used in paint which changed on a global scale after the first nuclear bombs were dropped and that the soil uh, something to do with plants that they used in the, the manufacture of acrylic paint had a had a certain change in, in them like after the bombs were dropped and as a result you can detect forgeries really easily oh, wow there you go so yeah yeah it's just it's not not nothing to do with, sorry nothing to do with godzilla or them but just it's just a fascinating idea you know i think when you consider the godzilla franchise more broadly it does become about more about environmental so i think without knowing it you've, you've sort of thrown it into the next part yeah, which is yeah. you know the, the not only the nuclear weapons impact on the environment but humanity's impact on the environment yeah yeah as a result of expansion mm, you know yeah which tends to take over after a few of the Godzilla films and they do away with the sort of atomic anxiety mm -hmm. and it becomes more environmental. So no, not, not a throwaway. <laughs> did, did you have any films you wanted to bring up in this context or just sort of more broadly atomic age well, or films about the atomic age? Or So I, I, when you, when you kind of mentioned atomic age films, I, I'll be you know honest. I, I didn't initially, I knew that Godzilla was one of them. But I had a hard time thinking about any that I personally have any sort of memory or reverence for. The only one I could think of was The Butcher Boy, that Neil Jordan film, which I, I remember very little about. But there's um, there's a definite kind of uh, string of anxiety surrounding that film, which and, and the the nuclear weapon thing in it is quite brief. But uh, mm. I, I, I need to watch it again. And I, I remember really liking it, actually. It's something, uh, something to be said about <laughs> neil jordan although his films can be like massively hit or miss is he's very good at he's very very good at unease i think um mm. and mm. sort of like bubbling beneath the surface kind of thing similar to sort of lynch or something but in the case of the butcher boy it's like so the film's basically about a boy growing up in the 1960s uh, mm -hmm. and his sort of dysfunctional family and that kind of stuff but he's got like a, a mate who feeds him this sort of increasingly paranoid delusions about nuclear annihilation and um obviously you know in this sort of 60s context it, it starts to like envelope and he starts having there's like a these visions of the sort of nuclear annihilation um just one to watch i think if you haven't it's not widely known about or widely seen but uh that's a, oh, that's yeah, a great not... one mm. okay yeah yeah it's good, good I, I've, movie. Not, I've not heard that is that, is that um english uh it's a it's irish it's like an irish black comedy oh okay yeah 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 and that's good okay um i <laughs> yeah a, a cursory i did a cursory google atomic age films and my god there's some shit as well like oh yeah <laughs> some really bad ones yeah yeah um yeah uh, crimson tide was among them i remember quite liking that have you seen crimson Tide? oh yeah yeah wow that's a yeah. that's a deep cut but um, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's difficult um, to to find to find any kind of real standout ones for me. Um, it's it is a bit of a blank spot in my kind of 
it, on you know my DVD and Blu-ray collection, which I can see right now. I uh, <laughs> you know, although <laughs> although atomic weapons are used in a lot of that you know in the plots of a lot of films, it's it's usually a, a, a kind of military or kind of a almost silly science fiction action aspect of it. Like I think it's in one of the Mission Impossible films, isn't it? Like one of the recent ones, Fallout. That sort of got a probably bit of a, yeah. yeah. I don't, th- they all blur into one for me, but I imagine nuclear weapons make an appearance at some point. Yeah, yeah. It, it you know they have entered the cinematic language, but um, in terms of actually like conveying the the sort of yeah the bubbling tension, uh, it's it, they're quite for me anyway. It's quite hard to to. I mean, those films any. sort of resonate. They, they you know they're they're anchored in that period, though, aren't they? I mean, it, you know. Nuclear true, weapons yeah. are the definitive sort of world-ending weapon. Mm, that oh, we yeah, have. yeah. Uh, the feasible, not, tangible. Not, not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, like, yeah, like, so I think it's the idea that they're sort of threaded into sort of action and science fiction, science fiction, sorry, films of, of you know, the last sort of 30, 40, 50 years as a result of that anxiety, I think, speaks yeah. volumes to the the depth of the sort of fear and, mm. the, and, and the concern that is shared by everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what a way to generate stakes. If you want to have an actual world-ending scenario that doesn't involve like an alien blowing up the core of the, the Earth or something, if you want to have it a bit more sort of grounded in realism, you have the opportunity to do that because they're genu- these things genuinely exist. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it is a great way yeah. to gra- keep your film grounded in reality, whereas at the same time introducing the highest stakes you know, on a global scale. Like, yeah, it is yeah. Yeah, very, very true. Yeah. I mean, if you even think about like Terminator, I mean, Terminator 2, if you think mm. about the, the sort of uh, the the scenes where Sarah Connor's on the park and the nuclear bomb drop, yeah. you know, like that imagery mm. is so reminiscent of like Cold War or sort of atomic era sort of films that folk that obviously are born from that anxiety. So I think, yeah. Particularly interesting in the case of Terminator, it's the resurrection of those anxieties through the lens of AI, which again is something yes. that is incredibly, um, you know, prescient. prescient yeah, 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 completely. Yeah, yeah. Although that, that scene is great, I it is it's so obvious that James Cameron had that his reference point was, you know, that the real footage of you know those kind of fake towns being destroyed. Yeah. You, know, you see those all the time of just these houses getting ripped to shreds and you can so tell that that was a massive reference point for him yeah. when he was in the construction of that particular scene in the park and with Los Angeles in the background yeah, yeah. being just uh, obliterated. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. That's good. Uh, great films mm. as well. Never, never not oh, time yeah, to yeah. revisit those, which I haven't done in Definitely time actually. Not, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nolan then. I think, shall we? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's let's do Nolan. Uh, obviously, the the uh, aforementioned director of Oppenheimer, uh, mm. a figure that rose to prominence in the sort of early to mid two thousands, and since then, arguably yeah. from Batman Begins onwards, um, has maintained one of the most dominant positions in contemporary Hollywood as far as mainstream blockbuster directors go. Oh yeah, um, without a doubt. And is someone that has become incredibly divisive on the route to this point. Um, yes, yeah. filmmaker that I think <laughs> I've used this phrase several times, but you know, <laughs> he's viewed as cinema's greatest savior by some, or a pseudo intellectual shit flinger by others. You know, like <laughs> and yeah, he yeah. really <laughs> divides people on that basis. And I mm, think that's yeah. something that uh, I think both sides have uh, have a point. Um, yeah, yeah. But I actually found my enthusiasm for him 
grow upon watching Oppenheimer and coming out of the cinema. Uh, oh really? It oh, dampened yeah, a bit yeah. after watching Tenet today. <laughs> I'll tell you that much for free. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> but, but, you know, like that. There is a lot to be said about the way he he conducts himself in terms of the way he makes films, the processes and lengths yeah. to which he goes towards making films, and the end product mm. of his films, which okay, you know, not always as clever as they appear, and uh, in fact, no. a lot of it <laughs> is sort of window dressing. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> There's at least an intention there, I think. Oh yeah, completely. And uh, I'll get back, get into this a little bit more later. But although I did absolutely love Oppenheimer, it it did suffer from that window dressing somewhat. Uh, it it did feel to me like I remember watching it and I was like, that was so like fast paced for a three hour film. That was especially at the end. The pace is just so dramatic, and there's so much information getting thrown at you. I remember thinking right, I need to think about what this film is actually about. Yeah. And the conclusion I came to, which which I'll get into later, was actually quite a basic one. <laughs> um, in, you know, it, it, it just, it deals with the idea of annihilation and destruction. And actually, I don't really think it has a, a lot more to say than that. I think that was the main point of it. Um, and, you know, the same could... The same could be said for Interstellar, for example, which I really like, and I know you're not so keen on. It's it throws so much at you, mm. and it's it plays with time, and it's non-linear, so it's confusing. You know, on a first watch, it can appear quite confusing. There's a lot of a lot of sort of scientific ideas in there, but the actual central core themes and messages are dead simple. You know, mm, it's mm. things that have been written about for years and years. They're, they're as old as storytelling itself. A lot of his <laughs> themes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he does hide behind uh, a lot of <laughs> uh, unnecessary uh, in some, you know, some people would consider them unnecessary un- complexity. I think. No, I think you couldn't have said it better myself. I, th- I think he, you know, the, the window dressing element is in, in his uh, use of exposition. I think he, you know, he explains mm. away obviously quite lofty scientific ideas mm. um, in like the most sort of like throwaway fashion. I think that's that sort of that side of him that is sort of look. You know, I, I'm challenging audiences. You know, I'm I'm making audiences sit through a five minute exploration of I don't know yeah. like space travel or, or black holes or how time works <laughs> yeah. differently in different dimensions or whatever. You know, yeah. but I, I think it's quite easy to see through. Um, mm. And I think in films like Interstellar, as which, as you said, I'm not the biggest fan of. Uh, yeah, it's so easy to see through it. And I think it's also particularly <laughs> easy to see through it in Tenet. Probably the most easy to see through in Tenet. See through. In yeah, Tenet, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, to a slightly lesser extent, an Inception as well. I think he sort of dresses yeah. his films in this sort of complexity, which, as you said, once you sort of scrape that away, it's, it's very, very, very fucking simple what he's doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, completely. And that brings the question, I guess, with him is that he's, you know, he appears as someone that is, you know, unshackled to sort of do as he as he pleases with these huge astronomical budgets. But do you think that is really the case? I mean, are his films, given that, that a lot of the complexity that is sort of entrenched in his films is sort of a bit illusory what does that say about you know his position as this figure that is given carte blanche or is it a little bit more difficult and complicated than that yeah i mean quite this is something i think links a little bit to the promotional material he's done for oppenheimer 
and he does repeatedly keep saying there's no CGI in this film. And, you know, at face value, that's really, really impressive. It isn't true. It, <laughs> there, there, there might not be... Uh, well, for a start, uh, MPC, Motion Moving Picture Company, accredited. So there is visual effects in this film. And it, but he, the way he states it is, is quite actually sort of um, misleading. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and so he, yeah, he is guilty, I think, uh, uh, of presenting an idea to, the, to his audience that, that this is his film and this is his brand and, uh, and it's, nobody else can kind of do it the way he does it. Yeah, and it's very big and bold and complicated, and uh, and he's a genius. And I really don't think that's actually the case at all. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker, and I think he is, you know, uh, he's championing the the use of film and the use of IMAX, which is unfortunately kind of I say unfortunately. I, I actually I'm a bit mixed on the whole whole thing myself, but yeah, it, it all boils down to there's a presentation of something. You know whether that be uh, big, bold, complicated ideas in his films, or or, or statements of grandeur that, yeah. when you look in, when you look into them, you know, scrape beneath the surface, they just fall apart and they're just not true. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, there is visual effects in your film, mate, and don't be afraid to credit the people that did it because there might not be any like three D. There's there's a lot of miniatures used in Oppenheimer, and it might yeah, be yeah. down to compositing and things like that, which is equally. Um, commendable and i think you know it, honesty is the best policy chris yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I, I think yeah. you're right and i also think it's interesting that uh he you know that he talks about this idea of having complete creative freedom throughout the process well i mean i just mm. think that when you're working in with the budgets that he's working with i just can't imagine that there is a studio on the planet who says here's the money do what you like they, you know, no. I, I think you, know, you can tell in his scripts, you can tell with his use of exposition is often incredibly throwaway, that these are clearly things that he has had to put into his stories to make them commercially viable enough for studios to fund them, you know? So, oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I think this is where he all occupies this awkward territory for a lot of people, <laughs> including myself, even if that is like, yeah. you know, my view on that has softened a bit with how much I actually enjoyed Oppenheimer. Um, you know, mm. I, and and also Dunkirk. I really am a big fan of Dunkirk. We spoke about that before. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. In our in our war in our war film uh, episode, but you know, yeah. I, I'm not someone that thinks he's a bad filmmaker. I just think that when he is making stories uh, or, or basing his stories on historical material material that don't require that level of complexity, I think he's just a safer yeah. bet. Um, yeah, I also yeah. think he does a pretty good job with the Batman films and it's funny you talk yeah. about IMAX I mean I've only ever seen two or three films in IMAX and one of them was The Dark Knight oh right and wow, that was yeah. you know I mean say what you will about The Dark Knight I know it's you know I think it has this sort of this this place in a lot of people's minds as the best superhero film ever made um, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> which is obviously a debate that we can maybe have a little bit later on in the context of Nolan but I know you yep. want to mention Batman Begins, so maybe we'll save it for that. Um, yeah, but, yeah. you know, I think, you know, just the visual splendor is unbelievable and the commitment to that splendor uh, is mm. absolutely commendable. And I think, you know, we talk about in the Wes Anderson podcast that, you know, that that sort of use of film and those little techniques that sort of remind you you're watching a film on film stuff yeah. gives the film an additional sense of life. 
Uh, and I yeah. think he is definitely one of those filmmakers that does that just by the sort of lens that he goes to to utilize these tried and tested and in many eyes considered archaic techniques. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and I think that's something that absolutely should be commended. And I always will commend him for, even if I have just mm. watched Tenet. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I think it's interesting that that he that he has occupied this position, and um, as sort of for some cinema's greatest savior. Um, mm. But I think, it, 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 in some ways, certainly in terms of aesthetic and technique and the approaches that he uses. I mean, yes, of course he needs to give people in, in these um practical or, the, or the effects department a bit more credit um but he yeah. but he does use a lot of practical effects too i mean like for example back to dark knight the flipping of the bus uh Laurie, for example sorry um yeah you know that's 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 an impressive feat you know f- um, yeah. and i think that ingenuity for me is where i agree with that side of him being like not a savior but an important figure in mainstream f- filmmaking for those reasons um yeah yeah no i do agree with you i think there's almost now nowadays it's it's the similar similar to what tom cruise does with stunts it is it's an advertising point it's like right what did you do entirely practically this yeah, time, yeah you know like obviously in tenor he crashed a plane yeah. in dunkirk he crashed a spitfire i think a real spitfire or at least a well he crashed a real plane again um uh obviously the dark knight had the truck flipping uh interstellar the big thing was this is an interesting one uh he used he used rear projection which is a form of visual effects but he used rear projection inside the spacecraft to to give the actor something to look at you know look out the window and see the earth or see this big gargantuan black hole uh and there's always an advertising yeah yeah (laughs) similar to you know what what what's tom cruise gonna do to try and kill himself this time it's the same thing (laughs) you can kind of pull it out the bag obviously in the case of oppenheimer it's the recreation of the trinity test which was done with real explosives i think it was miniatures or bigatures as uh, peter jackson once oh yeah yeah uh and um yeah, yeah, it's it's funny how he uses that as a marketing tool. Well, it's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because we were talking about that quite a long time ago about the use of cinematic technique as a marketing tool and how that's something that's yeah. sort of come out of nowhere. We were talking about that in the context of the one take. Uh, I can't remember yes. what it was. Yeah, maybe yeah. John Wick one, maybe? Um, yeah, maybe. You know, talking yeah. about you know how that technique has become like a marketable uh, yeah. part of, of a movie that, people can go to and even people that aren't necessarily knowledgeable about any aspect of the filmmaking process will go into that mm. and or come away from it rather more impressed on the basis of of that technique yeah. <laughs> and i think that's yeah, why i yeah. not quite considered that in the context of nolan um yeah there's always one one thing you, you watch that watch out for the next film he does he'll do something else he'll He'll create an, a, a kind of a natural earthquake or something, or make a volcano erupt or something. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I can totally imagine <laughs> yeah. it. Totally imagine it. Mm. So I, I did want to quickly ask you a bit in a bit more detail about Tenet, and I, I've only seen it the once. Uh, I think Oppenheimer vastly improves on this. His sound design. I mean, there's something to be said about how he uses sound yeah. and how he thinks he's using he favors the soundscape over the the important thing which is the dialogue yeah. uh, and oppenheimer didn't suffer from that at all actually i think he kind of really reined it in but tenet was a culmination of just like i can't fucking hear mm. this like i cannot hear what anyone is mm-hmm. saying and uh, it's just 
it's one of the many things that Tenet suffers from. I think I actually would go so far as to say, think Tenet might be his worst. Uh, do you, I do mean, you agree? I absolutely completely agree. Yeah, I think it is, without a shadow of mm. a doubt, his worst movie. Um, mm. I, I think there's a lot to like about it. I think the ambition of Nolan is always something that's somewhat commendable. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, if not slightly infuriating, well, no, actually completely infuriating <laughs> in this instance. I think it's everything yeah. that Nolan does. I uh, more from a detractor's perspective, ranked up to eleven. Um, yeah, yeah. Needlessly <laughs> complicated dressing up with all of this sort of exposition about time travel. Uh, yeah. The sort of again the use of the overpowering nature of the score and the sound design, which I thought Oppenheimer yeah. had a little bit of at the start, but I think it worked as a thematic device given the enormity of the uh, situation yeah. these characters were undertaking. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, okay. in, but in, in Tenet, I think it's quite important that we have some sort of context as to what's going on, particularly as the narrative yeah, literally yeah. just sort of starts and then that's it. You're not given any <laughs> sort of suggestion of no. what, what's going on. I know that's sort of the idea of the film that's supposed to be confusing, but that's part of the yeah. problem with it. It's someone almost doing intellectual wheelies uh, who, is, mm. who doesn't appear <laughs> that clever. And I don't want to say that. Yeah. Too, I, well, I have said it, but I, you know, I, I obviously yeah. Nolan is a clever bloke, and he knows what he's doing. He's an incredibly talented bloke, but I just think, you know, if you are a detractor of Nolan's and you think a lot of what he does is sort of empty, um, and I don't, mm. yeah, I think Tenet is going to be the film that's going to sort of prove a lot of your criticisms right, really, because yeah. it's just, oh it's yeah, an yeah, empty, largely dull experience, and even the action sequences. I mean in reverse they're not that impressive and i know that no that's, not. that's like my biggest bugbear with it like i could i could sort of get over the you know like with inception for example all the sort of prattling and all the sort of all that like yeah okay <laughs> whatever you oh you're clever you know but the sequences in inception yeah. are really well done um yeah and yeah. that's sort of the saving grace of the film really but in tenet mm. i mean there's none of that because there's something very uncinematic about them in reverse <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And also I think he relied too heavily on uh handheld for the the fight sequence and for a lot of the action sequences and um yeah, it was just a big confusing sort of boiling pot of trying to be impressive with things going backwards, which was good when YouTube came out in 2005 and people could people like jumped into a, a swimming pool and then played it in reverse to you. You're like, oh, that looks interesting. But it's like, what, 15, 20 years on? You're like, yeah, I, I know what that looks like now. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't know. Um, I I did, yeah, on reflection, I think it's his worst film. Followed closely probably by The Dark Knight Rises, which I, I thought was ambitious. And I like the fact that it's kind of almost Dickensian. Yeah. like Taylor yeah. Just- about the Dark Knight Rises, which I love. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I don't uh, thought of it in that context, yeah. actually. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, there is, um, there's something bold about it, and it's not trying to be the Dark Knight, and I liked it for that. But the action in the Dark Knight Rises, I actually thought was pretty naff mm. as well. Like the end fight in the snow with him and Bane was just, just really like almost. It it didn't look like these were two men, uh, you know, at odds with each other. It just looked it looked looks choreographed. Yeah. Um, and not well choreographed either. So, yeah. No, yeah. I just, I was, I, I'm sort of, I sort of keep going back to that point of uh, of Nolan occupying this awkward space. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think this film is just the most fitting representation of of that argument. 
Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a shame because, you know, Rob Patterson, I think, was riding quite high. John David Washington was also riding high, you know, and it just, yeah. you know, it was probably the first time that people came out of the cinema generally after coming out of a Nolan film and going, meh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, completely right, yeah. Obviously, COVID didn't help. No, it, it it was the first film of his in a long time to lose money. Um, I do, I do kind of think also, Nolan. Some of my my personal favorite Nolan films are are films he has made with uh, with restraint. So the Prestige, I I really really like. Um, apart from, I mean, Dan, our dear friend Dan has a, makes a good point of saying, I don't like films. You know, it's it's a film about magic, and magic's kind of lame. <laughs> and I can understand, you know. <laughs> and it, when he says it like that, you kind of like, oh shit, yeah, it's just about uh, <laughs> magicians, really. Like, it, it, there's not, it doesn't have that that kind of big, bold, brash Nolan edge to it. But um, I think it's a really well put together film. And it was $40 million that cost. So not a lot. And he shot, you know, it's Victorian England. So he was working with, you know, under a forced restraint there. Memento, again, goes without saying, uh, one of his earlier efforts. So he mm. he probably didn't have final cut on that film, but it worked. It played in his favor. And I think that actually, that one, I think, is probably his cleverest film. <laughs> um, yeah. Because of, you know, the, the fact that it's, it's just about this this condition, and it cues the audience into into feeling what you would feel if you had it. And that, I mean, that's something to be said about his brother and his writing as well. But the way he does that and the way he presents that to you is genuinely, I think, really clever. And I really like, yeah, yeah. admire the film for that. Um, but when, as soon as he has no restraint, and as soon as he has access to, you know, a hundred plus million dollars, I do think it's that lack of and a lot of filmmakers have professed that working under a uh, force restraint forces you to be creative and nolan doesn't have that so maybe if he if he cut his budget in the next one it, it, it might bear bear some fruit having said that oppenheimer was only 100 million so was dunkirk actually which in the case of nolan isn't actually all that much money uh tenet was twice that amount it was 200 million so and uh, look what happened there <laughs> yeah i think with the case of tenet uh and interstellar for me and even inception it's grandiosity and pomposity in equal measure mm, I yeah think, <laughs> obviously he is a, you know a devout lover of the medium uh, yeah, uh, he obviously loves Kubrick. You know, he mentions Kubrick all the time in interviews. Yeah, um, yeah, completely. I, I sort of got flavors of Malik in Oppenheimer actually a little bit. Um, oh right, yeah, okay. That's a, twa- I can see that. that's a twatty yeah. remark. <laughs> flavors of Malik. <laughs> flavors of Malik. Ooh. Yeah, but you know, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, like obviously he adores Kubrick, and I think that he is trying to ape Kubrick through the lens of mainstream contemporary cinema. And I just think that's yeah. a really difficult thing to do um, because the landscape oh, yeah. is different. I think yeah. studios have always been apprehensive about giving these sort of singular vision types a lot of money. Um, yeah. But I think that he, I think he probably plays ball than he would admit. Um, mm-hmm. But I think he reserves his sort of homage to, to Kubrick for his visuals and his thematic intent, which yeah, doesn't yeah. really hold a candle to Kubrick at his best. Um, no, no, and, and, I, and I think it might be a bit unfair to sort of hold that comparison because my admiration for Nolan, as I've said, has has increased. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah okay. you know, yeah. and like I said, when I think he's working with uh, something historical, I think he's at his best. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think Dunkirk is fantastic. 
Um, we sort of yeah. talked a lot about that in the press film, so I won't go on about it too much, but I think it's, mm. you know, one of the finest contemporary war films made, certainly from uh, a Western perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a Hollywood perspective, should I say. Um, yeah. And I also thought Oppenheimer was a real success, a real achievement. Um, yeah. So, you know, I sort of don't want to feel like I'm being too harsh about him. Um, no, same. Yeah, actually, because I do greatly admire I him. Do, and, uh... I do, but I just think, I think calling him cinema's greatest saviour might be a bit of a stretch. Um, yeah, I think so. I agree. I do agree with that. Um, especially, I don't know, especially, you know, in the context of The Dark Knight Rises and Tenet. This guy ain't perfect. No. He can he can fall prey to his own indulgences, um, and you know. But when he when he works, it it just is it is really unique. And um, I I'd love to talk about a bit about Batman Begins actually. Go for it. Yeah. I don't know if I I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I might have done in one of our superhero efforts, yeah. uh, but it, it, that for me, if someone said. I want to watch a blockbuster. That is the film I would choose. I, it's my personal favourite of the three Batman films. I do think the again, I've said this before, but the Dark Knight is a objectively better film. But there's something to be said about the uh, Batman Begins. Obviously, again, he's working with a bit of restraint. He probably didn't have final cut. It was Warner Brothers taking a gamble on a relatively new voice in cinema at the time. So he absolutely wasn't. He absolutely did not have final cut on that film. Um, I'd be very surprised. Um, uh, and he's working with a really decent, really succinct script, which people forget that Batman Begins came out only two, three years after nine eleven, and that the ideas, and you know, going back to what we were saying about you know history and historical context, and how films can be a sort of you uh, bear, bear the burden of contemporary events. Batman Begins is literally a film about the weaponization of fear. And post nine eleven, I think that is just genius, right? And it, it, it's a way to to hook an audience, and uh, you know, via something that uh, you know in in the collective consciousness. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's such a great, or near perfect. I mean, <laughs> superhero film, and I don't think it will ever be topped. I think it's. Yeah. Um, I think it's. Uh perhaps alongside uh, Tim Burton's Batman films although it's mm. albeit a different version of what I'm about to say but it's it's a it's a very successful fusion of the directorial style the influence of contemporary yeah. events and the mythology of the character um yeah, and yeah. I think that's something that Batman Begins does really well I think the Dark Knight is more a Nolan film. It's Nolan's homage to Heat yes. with Batman in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd proved his worth by that point. So he he had... There's more of his stamp on it. Yeah. And less of sort of Goya's. Yeah, yeah. Less yeah. less indebted to the sort of comic book uh, world, as it were. Um, yeah. And again, you talk about this idea of the sort of the, the post 9-11 sort of collective condition. It definitely carries on. In, into the dark mm. night, the visuals, for example, yeah. the rubble, even like, sort of yeah, like yeah. the sort of um, you know, and this is starts in Batman Begins, but the the, the suit is Kevlar, it's armor, and, and all of the weapons come from R and D. They're not these sort of ridiculous yeah. gadget, gadgets that have sort of like a silliness to them. They have like yeah. a, they're sort of entrenched in some sort of reality on the, on the basis of the ridiculous things that people have cooked up in times of military 
or, or global crisis. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, oh, you're God, you're right. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like, I, I think there's, you know, I think Nolan is deserves credit for that, for embedding those ideas into, because, mm. you know, if, I mean, not to sort of go on the point about super problems too much, we've had two episodes dedicated to that, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think there's not many Marvel films now that are trying to sort of tap into, I know they sort of tried to with Civil War and, and to, and to probably mm. the most successful extent, uh, Winter Soldier about sort of um, surveillance as, as a tool for prevention, etc. But I think the thematic and visual stylings in Nolan's first two Batman films, it's a lot stronger and um, yeah. it has that sort of anxiety underneath it in a more sort of palpable and successful way. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think both, I, I, I think Batman Begins is, is probably the better film as well, actually. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I think The Dark Knight stumbles on the grandiosity of its attempt to untangle those themes. Um, mm. Whereas I think, yeah, Batman Begins is much more succinct. So I would agree. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated Again. by what you said about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm genuinely fascinated by what you said about the uh, the Kevlar stuff, you know, because you're right. It's it's uh, it's literally Wayne Ent- Enterprises military division uh, yeah. left sort of left over. Uh, and Lucius Fox literally, you know, says to him, this is this is military grade stuff. Uh, and I didn't consider that, actually, but you're, you're totally right. I'll have to watch Batman Begins again. <laughs> no, no worries. Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> uh, shall we move on to Oppenheimer then? Because I think yeah. that's a good, good segue because there was actually a point in, in Tenant, uh, Tenant, <laughs> Tenant. Yeah. In Tenant. Roman Polanski's Tenant. Yeah. Yeah. There's a point in, in Tenant where they even make a reference to Oppenheimer. Um, oh right! <laughs> the, the inventor of this, or what I was sort of tuning out by this point, but <laughs> comparing this inventor of this um, this device, um, which is going to sort of bring about the bring about sorry the end of end of t- the human race. Yeah, um, yeah. It's called you know that generation's Oppenheimer. Yeah, oh, really? <laughs> it's a bit strange to sort of hear that, knowing obviously now that Oppenheimer's out and in full swing course yeah um, um they, the algorithm isn't it that's what yeah it's that's it the algorithm that's it god it's amazing that i've literally just finished it about 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 an hour ago and i've already forgotten that. oh well there you go yeah, yeah. it's a uh, bit of a dud <laughs> where nolan sort of fails in tenet and his some of his worst impulses are are apparent in lots of his movies mm. i feel you know going back to the idea of what i said about grandiosity and pomposity in equal measure yeah. I really felt that the grandiose nature of his cinematic style was far more prevalent than the pomposity. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of his techniques and his approaches and the way that he approached not only the subject matter, but but also the sort of way he his narrative techniques engage with the subject matter didn't feel pompous. I, it, felt, mm. it felt right for the enormity of, you know, the history that they were bringing, that he was bringing to the screen. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm not just talking about the way that he manipulates time because it's very, very Nolan. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but the way, even the way he sort of intercuts the sort of phosphoric atoms burning through a black screen or or sequences oh, of nuclear hellfire are so Nolan. It's so on the nose, but yeah. somehow it just works. Yeah, I agree. I think 
the actual the visuals of what of those kind of events are so captivating they it really won me over in this instance like those kind of fast spinning you don't really know what you're looking at but it, it must have had a kind of scientific basis and like you know the yeah just the, just all of this hellish destruction that that gets very 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 quickly cut into a lot of it's it's when Oppenheimer come, becomes a lot more kind of insular um yeah i loved it i i really thought that punctuated the film in this case and it didn't feel uh it didn't feel reckless or uh, or cheap it felt really earned and um yeah no i agree with you i think it's really 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 clever how he did that yeah no i i just think that that's the what this film saving grace is mm. uh, is that it, it sort of vindicates his creative decisions mm. uh, vindicates his style as a filmmaker um yeah and at no point did I, did I become even slightly perturbed with any of the things that would usually bother me in his other movies. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it felt that right for the context of the story that he was, um, that, you know, that he's obviously yeah. incredibly passionate about, both as, oh, yeah. as, as a cinematic event, but also as a sort of cautionary tale about atomic power, which is, I guess, what, what, what it should be. I mean, it's interesting. I, I was... Uh, watching or for the sake of research and there's a few experts that say you didn't go far enough and i think that oh, right, could, okay. could be a valid criticism um yeah. but i felt very uh bogged down by you know the, by the sort of um the impossible nature of his decision and a lot yeah. of, the, sort of the themes within that decision about the sort of how you know his history forced his hand. You know, the fascists were building, or the Nazis, sorry, building their own nuclear bomb. Um, yeah. And that had a huge impact on Western scientists because they wanted to combat fascism. And the only way they knew how, and that's by providing their intelligence yeah. to the fight. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. This idea that you give this to the Nazis, they will just use this for the worst things imag imaginable. Yeah, uh, yeah. And in so, this in this situation, we are the good guys, so we can. Yeah. I mean, it's not as straightforward as that, but no. as, as Oppenheimer finds out, but yeah, <laughs> but that idea that, that that sort of history forces your hand, and also history can sort of manipulates idealism, you know. Okay. And the figures within that history manipulate idealism. You know that he thinks that. By developing such a weapon, it will make the whole world stand up, take notice, and realise mm. the, the, the destructive potential of scientific endeavour. And mm. this will sort of garner in a, a, a new peace, and never seen before. And it's interesting because I think about it in the context of other weapon inventors, the man that invented the Gatling gun thought the same. If I invent something that is so horrible that accelerates yeah. the killing of people, that maybe it would convince people not to use it but of i course, see it, it, yeah it gets used and i think there's something inherently tragic about that experience and, and coming to realize that mm. oh yeah completely it, it is it's a big theme in the, the film and and that throughout the first half there's a really there's a real sense that they think they're working towards something peaceful and something good it's like this is this is going to be the bomb to end all wars and and the, the film does a really good job of of slowly tipping though that that sort of idea on its head and and the revelation that all he has done is created a, a means to destroy each other and annihilate each other and 
and it's yeah the way that the film kind of plays with that is really really great and um it, it does just sort of boil down to that you know the that there's a there's a line that keeps happening in the film and that theory will only take you so far and yeah. i i think that that was really successful in in illustrating uh the the you know it, it's it's a, a statement which is is screaming at him the whole time it's getting screamed at him like or or not literally but he needs to he needs to take heed of that and i think it might be him that even says it initially he says theory will only take you so far and what what he eventually realizes what that means is your theory if if correct is is gonna is gonna be the ultimate destructive weapon yeah and as soon as you pass that theory on to you know t- to someone else with a more destructive mindset what do you think they're going to do mm. they they're going to use it you know that this is going to be used to kill hundreds of thousands of people and it's it's really interesting that he is the person to profess theory will only take you so far and yeah. when uh, you know and ultimately that is exactly what happens when as soon as it's taken out of his hands he's realized what he's done um yeah really great you know uh, not not a theme that hasn't been explored before, but I mean, done done brilliantly. I thought. No, absolutely. I think that the, there's a sort of an anxiety, not just about the uh, the process of creation, but also the ideologies or the clashing of ideologies that dogs that process of development. You know, mm. you know yeah, yeah, and how that clashing of ideology dictates America's domestic and foreign policy. Uh, and mm. how you know how that generates further anxiety for the for the, uh, the scientific minds, you know, many of which had left leaning or, or left wing sympathies, and as we know historically, yes, yeah. it was you know you weren't looked upon with any favor at all if you had any um, you know sympathies no, for yeah. communism or any sort of left wing ideology, um, and mm. that that generates a lot of tension in the film as well. I mean, you know, the Oppenheimer is even in America's supposedly greatest hour of need, he is still viewed by many as an enemy and someone to be watched. And you always yeah, get the sense yeah. that this, this sort of this duty that he is, that he, you know, that in the eyes of any sort of like, you know, nuanced straight talking patriotic American would say he was a great deed. Um, yeah. It's yeah. amazing mm-hmm. that that is so quickly turned on its head. Um yeah. By him, just purely by him expressing his guilt, it resurrects all of this sort of, um, all of this doubt about his past, his political affiliations. Um, yeah, and even yeah. though he resists his political temptations um, or his ideological temptations in the pursuit of, you know, scientific or academic endeavor, he is still viewed yeah. uh, negatively by those people in positions of power. And it's also those people yeah. in power that that use the bomb, uh, you know, in, in a manner to which that at least in the film is portrayed with very, very little, uh, guilt or concern. Yeah. Um, mm, no. Yeah. The, there's a, that, I love the scene with, uh, the president as well, uh, played by Gary Oldman. Well, yeah. That was a bizarre little cameo, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a, one of the best moments in the film where he says, and this is this really happened apparently. Uh, he says, "I've got blood on my hands," and there's that that almost attempt by uh, I can't remember which Truman. Uh, it's Truman, isn't it? Yeah, it's, there's this attempt by Truman 
to kind of take away that burden of guilt from him and put it on his own shoulders. And this is it's that a moment where you kind of think, shit, the president of the United States is completely willing to to take that burden of guilt and responsibility onto his shoulders and not bat an eyelid. But and and the fact that Oppenheimer refuses to give that across angers him. Mm. So he he kind of basically just wants to say to him, look, you don't need to campaign about these weapons because it's not your fault it's mine i was the one that that pushed the metaphorical button you don't you can go on and live your life and you just need to keep quiet now yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know and there's that moment uh, where he he sort of calls him like a cry baby doesn't yeah, he yeah uh, yeah don't know that's really cry baby back in my office Again, yeah that's something. right yeah paraphrasing oh. something to that effect yeah i think that that, that was the line yeah um yeah, I just thought that that whole section of the film post Trinity test was kept kept my attention as well, and I didn't think it would. I thought after the Trinity test, it would wane a little bit and kind of uh, almost um, end end with a bit of a whimper, but it didn't. Um, and the the communist thing was something unexpected for me. I didn't think they'd explore that that much. I didn't actually think it had a lot of. Uh, I didn't think it would have a lot of relevance to to the overall themes of the film, you know, this idea of the, the humanity's uh, potential to destroy itself. But it actually kind of did. Uh, I yeah. thought that, you know, the, 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 his, the taking away of his security clearance, which by the way is presented so dramatically, you think that they're going to kill him or something. Yeah, but all they're yeah. doing is take, taking away like a piece of paper from him. But um, to, to him, that is the worst thing that can happen because he, he's that all kind of mean he's no longer got a voice and he's no longer got a chance to to redeem himself in in any way. Uh, I thought that the, the the latter half, the last half an hour, last twenty minutes, half an hour, really kept the pace going and uh, really, uh, yeah, really helped with the gravity of the overall uh, theme. Yeah, it just really gives mm. a sense of impression that you know the Cold War had started even when before the Second War had finished. Yeah, yeah, you know, completely. The sort of the the demonization of left leaning people in all positions in society throughout the yeah. war. Um, mm. I know that the Communist Party took a significant, um, well, it endured a significant loss of membership when um, when when Stalin signed the pact with Germany, as you'd expect. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. But you know, I think that's something that's really fascinating is that you know the the, the bomb, the atomic era is basically mm. this looming spectre of the cold war is there not just ideologically speaking in, in in the in the in the sort of growing uh chasm of difference and eventual opposition between left-wing ideology and more sort of liberal conservative ideology that's inherent within america in the time but also oh, yeah. the bomb that is guided by the ideology that would come to sort of usher in the cold war and yeah it, yeah it feels bizarrely prophetic the, the use of those ideas and the use of those conflicts throughout the movie. And I thought that was really, really well paced. Um, yeah. yeah. Of the film thematically and narratively mm. speaking. Oh, completely. Yeah. I also loved um, the kind of weird dichotomy between the, the, the overarching uh, sort of arc that Oppenheimer experiences. And then Robert Danny Judy's character, well, to a much lesser extent experiences the exact same thing, except instead of it being the destruction of the world, it's the realization that it isn't Oppenheimer's fault, but Einstein didn't look at him. <laughs> I, I loved that. I, I thought, um, Danny, that Robert Danny Jr.'s character, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, um, which Strauss. is, uh, 
Is it Strauss? Yes, yeah. it's Strauss. Yeah, that's right. Um, there was sort of a weird parallel there with, uh, uh, I guess, uh, it's it's a misunderstanding that, that happens. And in Oppenheimer's case, it's a misunderstanding that this bomb is going to be used for the force of good. And in Robert Downey Jr.'s case, it's a misunderstanding that Oppenheimer has has uh, rallied science, science and scientists against him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I always thought there was a strange parallel between those two characters. Um, and it is, you know, it kind of it almost is, uh, again, like tried and tested theme, but humans, human beings are all fallible and there's no there's no such thing as a, per- a perfect person or a perfect man. It's It's always, you know, you're always going to be, at, at the mercy of your your own knowledge and and the limit of your own knowledge uh yeah i thought that that was another good thing to just some another sort of weird thing to mention i don't know if that no, was intentional on that but absolutely yeah. i i think it's really important to mention robert downey jr's character strauss as 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 a key element of the, the, one of the or a key component of one of the other central themes in the film which is again a very much a, an atomic era theme which is this idea yeah. of unchecked scientific advancement. Yes. It, you know, it's yeah. not necessarily the scientists who are charging into these things willy nilly as the film Oppenheimer mm-hmm. very much shows that a lot of these scientists have very strong ideological and emotional grievances with the development of such a weapon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's taken out of their hands by people who are desperate to further their own agenda, further mm-hmm. their own, you know, spread an ideology which is um more most beneficial to them um, yeah yeah exactly or, yeah. or even just to further their own career uh, you know all their own mm-hmm. political machinations which you know downey jr's cross <laughs> is you know central to that um which i think yeah. so i think it's really absolutely right to bring him up in that context um mm. yeah I, so much so much to unpick but i mean we haven't really mentioned killian murphy i mean um, oh god yeah he's great i mean he's you know been an actor that i think for many people has you know always been great but to finally see mm. him in a in a front and center leading role yeah uh, which has you know all eyes on him really which is not something he's really had yeah. i mean i know he's you know obviously peaky blinders uh or yeah. you know, 28 days later you know he's taste lead roles but to yeah. see him front and center in a major blockbuster um oh yeah yeah you know it's absolutely about time isn't it i feel yeah i'll oh, completely i feel Long like overdue maybe more yeah more definitely killian murphy has in a sense yes he's been a leading man but 28 days later is more about a family and uh peaky blinders uh benefits from a you know fantastic supporting cast also whereas this this film is it's the first time where he really has been front and center mm. and he carries the he really carries the weight of this film yeah. on his shoulders and it isn't it isn't a light movie at all. It's like a very, uh, you know, it's, it's a big endeavor and he carries it just brilliantly. And also he does a really good job of the accent as well, I thought, because I remember watching the trailer and thinking, ooh, I don't know about that. But it, it's something. there's something to be said there. Uh, he clearly studied the guy and clearly sort of studied a lot of his um, newsreels that had him in it. Uh, and yeah, he's just, um, yeah, brilliant. I mean, it's been... He, I think it's almost universally accepted that Killian Murphy's performance in this is fantastic and really well cast as well. And mm. um, really like just a, what a great idea to not, cause you know, you could have had like 
DiCaprio again or something. And it, it wouldn't have worked because although Killian Murphy is by and large a movie star, he largely keeps himself to himself and his kind of public persona is almost non-existent. And I think you need that for a, for a figure like Oppenheimer because it just, it gives you the ability to, yeah, watch one of your favorite actors perform, but also get lost in a character that isn't dogged down by any kind of sort of tabloid press you know anything like that you know what i mean mm, yeah yeah and i think it makes his sort of appearance in in this manner all the more sort of striking and all the more sort of special and important not just in the portrayal yeah. of of oppenheimer but for himself as an actor as well yeah, I mean, yeah. you know there are people his co-stars who you know obviously you expect them to do this in any film but they really heat the praise yeah. on him in terms of the method of his performance yeah, yeah. In which he's, you know, starved himself. You know, you really get the mm. sense that he was really committed to capturing the the complexity of his character and how his complexity of his character uh, it is um, informed and subsequently molds. Um, yeah. You know, the creation of the thing that ends up sort of ruining his life. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. You know, you can just really see. You know his his icy blue eyes just carry the weight of destruction. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And I, oh yeah. Entirely. Yeah. You need someone striking visually. I mean, and Killian Murphy is striking visually, and it's just mm. goes without saying. Yeah, name. he is. Yeah. Supporting yeah, cast definitely. great as well. I mean, there's some real yeah, heavy hitters yeah. in that supporting cast that all hit their marks mm. superbly. I mean, you're absolutely right that, that that it is Killian Murphy who drives this film. And I think there has yeah. been a criticism, particularly from the representations of, of the female characters in the film, that they don't really get a lot of time. Uh, no, to, nothing new uh, for a Nolan film either. <laughs> that is very much true. a problem <laughs> of his. But there we go. But I, but I think in this context, you know, you know, I'm not necessarily defending it. I think it's a just criticism in, in, in a certain way. But I think when you view it as a film about Oppenheimer, it is about Killian Murphy. It's about his performance. Um, yes. And it's about his his own journey, ideological journey, political yeah. journey, and how that weaves into his own personal journey. And yeah. I think it's really important that it focuses on that and that the other yeah. characters sort of just, as supporting characters should do, supplement that. Um, yeah. And I think it's, at least in this instance, I absolutely agree with you that Nolan has, you know, doesn't always have the best treatment of female <laughs> characters in his movies. Um, no, no. He has a much more traditional view of, of female characters. I don't know if that's representative of his real life view. I can't speak to that, but in the I don't know. In yeah. the context <laughs> of 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 this film, I think it's important that the majority of the time the camera is focused on Oppenheimer, as it's his internal struggle yeah. that guides a lot of the thematic connection in the film. Yeah, and also, I mean, Nolan is a, a, a filmmaker that strives for historical detail and. Uh, and you know that's Dunkirk as well, and that he he doesn't like to to sugarcoat things really. And unfortunately for you know, I'm not saying this is a good thing at all by any stretch, but th- this this era was largely you know in terms of people who held a, a superiority, it was largely male dominated. And you know in this in this instance, although I think it's there's enough another discussion that's to be had about Nolan's other films and how he treats his female characters in his other films. In this case, it, it's it's almost like well it's a historical movie and it, it strives for details and it strives for accuracy. And, and unfortunately a byproduct of that is there's not going to be a lot of female <laughs> characters that 
Although maybe maybe they they could they could have focused a little bit more on on his romantic relationships, but then I don't know if that's going to serve the the cause any further because it's a film about a man and uh, and to, to to focus on his romantic pursuits isn't going to do uh, diversity any good anyway. So yeah, I actually thought Nolan handled the the use of um, his you know, romantic interests quite well. Um, okay, yeah. I think I would like to see more of them on the screen because both of them are just so fantastic. Florence Pugh and uh, Emily Blunt, respectively, both do fantastic in the roles and the short time they have. Um, yeah, yeah. And, they do, and yeah. I think they work really well as, you know, inf- as influences on him, be it, um, yeah. be it as, as the, the, the sort of the rock of his wife, who, who obviously is someone that, despite a lot of his sort of uh, Oppenheimer's proclivities and, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, pretty pretty dreadful behaviour as far as women is concerned, yeah. um, mm. or women are concerned. Sorry, um, stays by him and gives him a strength that he doesn't have on his own. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you know, that's a woman sort of supporting a man to be, to, you know, uh, not getting much credit for it. So again, there's an argument there for sure. Matt Damon as well. Uh, oh mate, yeah, he was great. He was horrible. I, I wasn't expecting him to be horrible, and he was. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was. I mean, he was more. It's more complex than that, obviously. But uh, he was that kind of um, uh, that sort of no nonsense military f- figure mm. that really did a great job of not making you hate him to the point where you wanted to spit on his face. Yeah, <laughs> but also maintaining maintaining Oppenheimer for a lot of it, and and kind of resisting Oppenheimer's uh, desire to almost sort of share this idea uh, with a lot of America. And he did a really good job of playing that character, that kind of, uh, yeah, that, that sort of military hard man uh, who has uh, ultimately has semi jurisdiction over him, even though there's, there's a sort of a dynamic with like, I think Oppenheimer knows that, Matt Damon's character cannot understand the science and therefore um, his superiority can only take him so far. I like I, I like the way um, Nolan characterises him because I think there'll be a real temptation there just to have him, as you say, as someone that is sort of this deplorable one-dimensional representation of, you know, this very mm. sort of ultra-conservative, very jingoist viewpoint. Um, it was yeah. obviously rife in, d- during a period of conflict. Um, yeah. But whilst the film definitely dips its toes in that, and I think whilst he is emblematic of that, just by the nature of being the only real sort of senior military figure in the film, um, yeah, yeah, who, who has prolonged, you know, uh, a prolonged role in the film anyway. Um, I think yeah. there's this sort of sense of begrudging respect between them both that he oh, even yeah, has yeah. for him after, and perhaps ideologically they have drifted apart um, after, mm. obviously, um, after Oppenheimer endures the sort of um, sort of witch hunt um so yeah no yeah no i agree uh i've got some uh comments oh yeah i love this yeah um so i i put because we did barbenheimer we'll talk about barbenheimer (laughs) in the barbie episode because i think i think we should yeah (laughs) perhaps but um as you know i i sort of set up the comments earlier today from both films so barbie got a lot more traction um right okay um, yeah and I can understand that for lots of reasons, but oh yeah, those have, have spoken about uh, Nolan. Usually, I try and thread it through the discussion, but we we're getting so into it, I sort of forgot to. So we're just going to dump it all here. Uh, we dump <laughs> your comments. We're not dumping. 
So when I asked people what they thought about uh, Oppenheimer, Alex, yep. Film Club, basically said uh, Oppenheimer, yay or nay, and then asked people to expand yeah. on it. He put uh, yeah. mostly yay, but Nolan can't help his usual quirks. Incredibly well put together, though. Mm, okay, yeah. So uh, there's, I think you know, we, we, we're sort of singing his praises in the context that we didn't find the typical Nolan quirks to derail any of the, you know, the great things in Oppenheimer, whereas Alex perhaps thinks a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I can see where he's coming from for sure, because it, it, it is guilty of that. And I was, like I was saying earlier, he does dress it up somewhat. And the, the themes, the themes in the film are actually quite simple. Uh, and that's not to the, that does not work to the film's detriment at all, because it is a prescient message and a message that needs to be told to audiences, but they are simple and they have, been done in various incarnations before some more subtly some less subtly and i think the 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 kind of the way they're portrayed uh makes them out to be more complex and unique than they actually are so yeah agree yeah mm. another comment here from jordana who um is someone that i might get on for a future episode oh lovely okay um yeah. she has said she in between the lecturing dialogue took away from the actual impact of what Oppie was working on. Ooh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting take. I personally don't necessarily agree with that, but mm. I think if you frame that in the context of the expositional dialogue, which yeah. is, you know, quite a big part of this film. Yeah, there, um, it's there. Yeah. It's, it's there in abundance. So, yeah, mm. I, I can see that uh, for some having a. Um, the ability to sort of detract from the sort of central thrust of the narrative. Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, I can yeah, see no, that. fair enough. No. Uh, and then I asked a couple of questions more broadly about Nolan himself. Jordana again, because uh, oh. you know, he <laughs> thinks himself a little bit too highly and it shows in his films, but he's good at what he, he does, to be fair, which yeah. I, which we've sort of said, and I completely agree with you, Jordana. Alex Hunt says, uh, mostly great, but sometimes overindulges and overcomplicating things, maybe to appear more deep. Or um, again, yeah, you're, you're taking you're just taking the words out of our mouth, stating stating the what we spent an hour and a half talking about and condensing yeah. it down into you know maybe we're maybe we're the Nolans here and these are the uh, <laughs> the actual yeah. filmmakers. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh. Um, and Dale, a regular comment says he brings together fantastic teams and glues them together for every different task and they succeed. So big Nolan mm. fan in in that regard. Maybe um, that speaks to his, you know, his actually he might be more of a collaborator than than you might think, and it's just his name that gets bums in seats. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, he works with some very, very, very talented people that deserve equal praise, if not slightly more. Um, so yeah, yeah nice and it is. Good. I do often think it's bizarre that when we talk about films, we only really talk about directors and actors, maybe yeah. cinematographers and writers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even then, they're criminally under underappreciated. So. Yeah, yeah, God, yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I think Dale's comment definitely brings to to the forefront an idea that maybe we should talk a bit more broadly about the, you know, you know, the yeah, other the, talent the, involved, the other crew. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You make the podcast very fucking long, but you know, <laughs> make film discussion a lot longer. But I think there definitely could be a lot more focus on that. Completely, um, yeah. Uh, and then Flint says is really good at his thing. Sometimes misses, mostly hits. So. Yeah, again, yeah, he's not perfect, but I do. I think 
he has got a thing, hasn't he? And he 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 sticks to it. Yeah. And although you know, arguably that same could be said about Wes Anderson, and uh, you know my you know my thoughts about him. But uh, <laughs> about bring, it, bring it back in. Bring it I back actually in think, yeah. <laughs> I actually off. think Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> I think Nolan is good at his thing, and he should continue doing it. Uh, it would be weird if he did anything else, and probably wouldn't succeed. Although, who knows? Yeah. I think I think he's definitely comfortable in in the space that he operates in now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just I I think he's probably going to go to some uh, something. He seems to sort of dart between sort of working on some sort of historical period piece or some sort of you know big moment in human history to then something in from his own mind. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> you know, I'd like I wait to be won over by it, but uh, mm. so far I think it's his work that's anchored more in reality that is superior. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, outro? Outro? Let's do it. Questing the cinematic There we have it then. Good to talk about, Nolan. It's it's felt a long time coming, hasn't it, actually? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm so pleased I got to gush about Batman Begins as well. <laughs> um, I, I have an alternative title for Oppenheimer. I've just thought of it now. Uh, Juice Bigelow, American Prometheus. <laughs> I mean, that's... Brilliant! It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it'll be a live, die, repeat, Edge of Tomorrow situation. By the time it gets released on DVD, they would have called it that instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine yeah. Nolan cursing himself for not thinking of it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Shit! <laughs> but no, a really great um, discussion. Really enjoyed that. A lot of things that you know uh, that I personally really love to talk about. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you to Nolan for allowing us to do that. I guess. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Don't know why I said that. Thank you, Chris. As if, as if you, you know, he's there going, "Oh yeah, cheers, lads. Don't worry." Yeah, yeah, all good. Yeah, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, I would say next week, but we've already said yeah. it in the outro that we, we, we're not going to have that next episode, Barbie. Barbie. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to talking about this one as well. Yeah, um, very much so. Uh, and and Barbenheimer as well. Just a very unique set of uh, partially manufactured, partially. Uh, in, you know, things getting handed over to the internet situation, yeah, uh, which is pretty hilarious, I think. Uh, and it's, you know, I don't know. Did you see them on the same day, both of them? I did. Yes, I did. Uh, I saw Oppenheimer first, Barbie second. So, um, yeah, okay. I think that worked out the best way because I came out of Oppenheimer feeling a little bit sort of, um, sort of despondent about everything. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. Barbie was quite a nice uh, remedy for it, actually. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, bit of a dessert. Yes. So mm. we'll uh, we'll skip to that dessert. Now. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, depend. I don't know what your listening strategy is, listener. But uh, if you give it a couple of days, enjoy those couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have a lovely couple of days. <laughs> Have a lovely couple of days. <laughs> yeah. uh, see you in the next one. <laughs>